welcome to Light Shed Live. Thank you very much, everyone, for <laughs> for joining us. Uh, Good invitation. Today. <laughs> today we are talking Starry, a disruptor in the broadband space by going after the space using yes wireless frequencies um i think most people might be familiar with them in terms of hitting mdus multi-dwelling units these large buildings um but i think the technology has certainly evolved maybe from from when maybe last time everyone has checked um chet's the founder and and uh, we're very pleased to have him with us thank you chet how you doing hey guys thank you so why don't, why don't we get started and kind of just give us, you know, a little bit of the background of kind of how you went from point A to point B to where we are today and, and why you chose this route um, in terms of the next phase of the company's growth. Yeah. So we started the company like, you know, December 19th or December 20th of 2014. And but so really think, you know, beginning in 2015 and from 2015 through 28, end of 18 was really a big sort of product development phase for us. And, uh, you know, obviously, as people are probably familiar, right, we were, we were we were using a combination of high capacity millimeter wave network with very high transmission power, phased array technology that we created both sides of the equation, and really, you know, boiling it all that down. And, and I don't know how much the audience is sophisticated on the wireless side or not. But really, the name of the game here is you're competing against coax, so you need a lot of capacity. Uh, so that means you need, you know, hundreds of megahertz plus massive MIMO. So you're basically putting a multiplier effect in there. You need range. So you're basically build out cost and time to build out is, is more efficient because you're using a combination of power and altitude because millimeter wave doesn't really permeate modern construction material and gets, you know, uh, affected, if you will, with physical uh, 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 objects. Um, to to be also, clear, just does not run but, through walls. Like just to- well, Hold on, clarify. but, but before, Chet, before we get into the technology, let's back up and just talk about the market that we're going after. So in your slide deck, you talked about this broadband market of 100, I think an $18 billion, which is the aggregate revenue generated by both a residential broadband, but also I think that probably includes some business revenue in there as well, right? I believe it includes small, medium business as well. Yep. So is, is the pain point to basically go after every, do you think you can go after every version of broadband customer that's out there? Or is there a subset of the broadband market that, that you think is addressable? You know, I think if you take enterprise out, you know, classic sort of point-to-point fiber where there is justification for, um, you know, a, a fiber build from an ARPU perspective, take that out. And then I think you're really looking at broadband plus services that are riding on broadband. And some of those aren't even sort of envisioned today. And SMB, which is, you know, we think of that as, you know, 20 to 30 employees and later, uh, less than that and, and non-chain retail. So that's sort of the loose collection, if you will. And if you look from a consumer perspective at your offering versus those of kind of the cable companies um, or others out there like a Fios overbuilders, can, can you talk a little bit about what your value proposition is? Yeah. So, you know, the first point of the value prop is it's unbundled, right? So they're not, the customer is not being forced or, or their life's not being made complicated in terms of take this TV thing or Peacock or this or that or any of those things, right? So it's a straight product, number one. Number two, it's symmetrical or it's biasable either way. So we offer, you know, 200-200, 200-100, 400-200, 500-200 gig both ways. So lots of different combinations at a very attractive price, plus 
control latency. So you're looking at and, and very low oversubscription. So I think there's a chart in there, which I could probably find in a second, which talks about kind of the oversubscription ratios and net net what that means is, and I think I saw some tweets from you guys before, you know, during the pandemic, before the node got split or whatever else, where, you know, when, when uh, everybody's on at the same time, your, your speeds of performance declines. And so that's really the capacity problem, right? So, so we offer sort of, you know, think below rack rate without, you know, rentals of routers or fees, taxes, et cetera. And, and, um, uh, at a very attractive price point. And then I think on top of that, uh, the customer experience is really great. You know, it starts with basic things like, you know, half hour windows for installations or really responsive care that has telemetry built into the network. So you call us and you ask us about a VPN problem. We are happy to help you with that. So all of that combined, you know, really kind of a modern experience if they think about, you know, kind of how, how a customer today expects e-commerce to work or, or things along those lines. And that's, that's kind of the, that's, uh, that's a good chat. That's a good way to keep customers, which is great. And obviously your reputation builds over time. But if you think about the pain point, getting the customer to sign up, getting that, getting to whatever those penetration rates are going to be in, in the addressable market, is it just because the customer hates their cable company that much and they're looking for an alternative? I mean, obviously your NPS scores, which you which you put in the in the presentation are very high relative to cable, easy comp, clearly. Um, or do you, or do you need, but high in general? Hi. Yeah, absolutely. high, Even on an empirical basis. Um, for sure. Sorry. <laughs> You're right. Brandon. Um, but do you need, I mean, you also talk in, in your presentation about the cost to build is so much lower. And, and I think people are to, to a certain extent excited about some of the fiber opportunities, which have much higher fiber overbuild opportunities, which have much a higher cost to build. Why not come to the market with just an even lower, um, offer in terms of broadband to really drive penetration as high as you possibly can get it? I think that happens over time, Walt, organically. I mean, if you think about kind of the life cycle of the company, you know, we started with serving multifamily first in 2019. That's been a you know big endeavor for us. So we went from zero standing start to almost 300,000 apartments that we're active in, uh, 280 plus thousand at the end of the second quarter. That's been a huge ramp. If you think about how many we're deploying on a monthly basis, you know, 10 to 15,000, even at at this stage on a monthly rate. So, so you know, what we haven't found yet that we need to push price down to kind of drive that adoption layer. We think, you know, the rule of thumb used to be, you know, quarter just hate their customer, their provider anyway. So they're going to consider you a quarter can be swayed, a quarter will never change. And you know, the quarter will just switch back and forth based on the best offer, right? So our view is like, we don't want the quarter that switches back and forth on, on the best offer. We want the core sort of quarter that we want to serve really, really well, grow with them. And as the market changes, you know, cord cutting, need for digital services, you know, ultimately maybe you need storage attached very close by, you need low latency, you know, collaboration tools, all those kinds of things. Uh, so I think what we've found is, you know, take rates for us has been pretty... I mean, look, we built a model, the business and built it based on, you know, four to 5% break even at four to 5% EBITDA, uh, EBITDA break even at four to 5% of passing. And, you know, we regularly, whatever we're building out in, in those properties, we're exceeding 20 plus percent after the you know first few months, first year cohorts all running north of, you know, about close to 22, 23, second year cohorts, you know, close to 30. Um, and it speaks to just, just I think dissatisfaction, competition, and and it's the new, you know, 
So I, think, I think, so I think the penetration rate that many people might be familiar with is, again, what we hear in Fiberland, where they talk about 35%. And again, as you point out, the cost of capital or the cost to get to that building is, is much higher. But is the reason that fiber may or may not be getting those higher penetration rates in year one or year two um, of their launch in a market just because the perception of No, <laughs> there's actually, you know, most people sort of... Uh, under value cable's ability to predatorily price small geographic areas. And what I mean by that is if you're, let's say, you're, you know, you're a fiber overbuilder or even, you know, you used to be RCN or whatever else, you basically, they can see you coming a mile away, combination of make readies, combination of conduit access, all of those things that allows them to focus marketing a little bit. You come in with a wireless, you know, you're like, it's a whack-a-mole problem. You're popping up every which way. And you're really looking at a citywide sort of problem at that point, right? From a pricing perspective. So that's the other thing in my experience, dampen stake rates on, on a traditional slow line overbuilt. So is your ultimate goal to get to 35 or 40% penetration? Or do you think that, I mean, I, you know, again, you point out in your model that 20% penetration, you can get to your target EBITDA margins and what have you over time. But well, less than um, that, I think we don't project. So in the projection period, we don't exceed six and a half percent, I think six, six and a half percent of serviceable passings in, in take rate. Terminal case we've modeled but, out is like 18%, 17%. So it's a pretty low bar that we're setting, not because we don't think we're going to exceed it, because we clearly have evidence we exceed it. We just want to be, you know, we're okay. going to be conservative today and, and uh, accounting for the fact that what you're pointing out, which is, look, there may be fiber overbills that go on, at least while the money is cheap. Uh, in the in the nearer term, that might, but I, I, you know, I think the flip side is it's just the time it takes to build those. It's, it's just dramatically higher. Is there a real difference in the value proposition between what you're offering and the fiber overbuild? There isn't, right? Because you get symmetrical both. No experience, like, like, and like, how do you market? I know Rich wants to drill down on on some other things, but how, how do like what's your market? What's your marketing message? What's your real go? What's your go to market versus the quote predatorily priced um, cable companies? So it depends on in the multifamily sector. Obviously, you know because your serviceability is low, meaning whatever you're you're deployed is kind of where you can market. It tends to be much more physical in terms of an event or leaflets, flyers, things along those lines. We're just starting Columbus, Ohio, which is the first market we were serving single families as well, which is really like a big kind of transition point for us. And there it's, from a channel perspective, it's largely digital and it's very efficient um, as, as you would imagine. Uh, and the message is basically, you know, the pillars tend to be for us is, you know, great speeds and great performance, uh, you know, great customer experience and in a company that has transparency built in its course so no tricks, no, you know, yeah. So, so it really attracts that customer who's either been recently frustrated, has just gone out of promo period and is seen running a promo that they can't get access to, uh, or, or, you know, all of those things. So let's just go back to the kind of the path to that penetration. Cause you're, you're talking about, I guess, addressable buildings. And my penetration was like where you've actually put an antenna on, in this case, a multi dwelling unit. I know that changes over time as you go d direct to homes. If we looked at in the, in the presentation, you say the coverage of the network is X. And then the addressable market is Y, and that's 50%, meaning that 50% of the homes within the coverage area, you can actually reach with an antenna. 
And then some percentage below that of those that are reachable that you actually hook up are X percent. And then you get penetration um, within a building. Is, is there, if we're just going to a building, is there a typical penetration rate within a building that rolls up to this 4% or 7% you know, percentage of the much larger number that gets you to this EBITDA pro, or um, positive in an MDU context, that's you know think of it as eighteen-ish percent. Uh, right. In a single family, it's basically the way the buildup is is about a quarter percent of passing on a uh, oh, half percent of passing on a quarterly basis. So I think my point is then I think that most people would think that eighteen percent should be easy lifting because of this this mindset of like if the person in that existing building his only experience was the cable company that you should be able to go in easily. And get thirty percent penetration, as an example, or thirty. So, why is that not happening, or why might that not be true? Uh, we think it will, uh, but I think okay. from a forecast perspective, we've set a pretty you know conservative case uh, in in the business forecast going forward. But you know, I think we've been transparent about it. if you look at where we're deployed, we are at north of twenty percent on average after um, you know first few months. And then the second component of that, and then I'll I'll turn it back to uh, Rich and Brandon. Um, is that 50%, is that a, just a function of where you're willing to build today? Because there's companies like Pivotal that are out there that talk about technologies that can be utilized where you're knocking the spectrum off of this, that, that way, that way, that you can get a much uh, larger percentage of the buildings. Yeah, the 50% is, that's a transient number. When we start a market, it tends to be in the you know 70-ish percent range serviceability. And over time, you improve that uh, to you know give or take you know, high 80s, low 90s. And that will vary based on the market, right? There is obviously a trade-off if you've got an extremely topologically challenging area where you may be lower on the serviceability part, or if you've got extreme foliage conditions, you'll be lower on the serviceability part in the 70% range. Whereas as you get out more west, you're going to be higher, you know, 95% plus on serviceability side. So there'll be a little bit variation depending on kind of how much you're willing to invest from a, uh, how many vertical assets that you're willing to invest in. Rich, just hold on for one second. There's one, just I think there's a good opportunity to kind of pivot to chat something you and I have talked about before in terms of many people are familiar with the early travails of Verizon in using millimeter wave spectrum. Just can you give us the basics of physics in terms of the elevation of your network and how you approach using this same frequency? Well, maybe a lower because 24 versus 38, but using this frequency works in how you're building the network versus perhaps what people are familiar with in the failures of Verizon? So, so I think uh, just RF engineering 101, uh, basically what you're really solving for is EIRP, which is basically you know the, the, the effective margin you have between two points. The problem when you're building a combined network is the mobile handset. Sorry, I'm trying to put my iPhone up. That uh-huh. won't show you up. can't see it. You can't, can't see it. You see need it. a green screen, Jack. Exactly. <laughs> The mobile mobile device has no gain in its antenna, right? Plus it is working off of a battery. So in order to talk to that mobile device, you got to be a lot closer and you're just doing a spread approach towards distribution of your propagation, right? So you're building at 16, 18 feet, you know, the calm space, you know, below um, high tension and you're building, you know, as much wide dispersion as you can because you're handset has very really zero gain and it's got a battery that's using to talk back up to you. You switch to what Starry is doing is using 
I'm not restricted to zero gain because my receiver doesn't go in anybody's pocket. It's mounted on the side of a building. So I can build a lot of gain into it, different kinds of antennas. And then I can use, since my targets are fixed, they don't move, I can basically decide my build altitude is going to be much higher because I, I really need to see people's rooftops or near the top eaves. And that allows me to have a much wider area of propagation. So it's a I mean, my, you know, when we started the company, our kind of view was like millimeter wave makes a ton of sense for fixed, not really a whole lot of sense on, on the mobility side. Uh, and I think generally that's how it's sort of playing out and it's played but out. I was even referring to Verizon's fixed deployments, where in that case, they weren't putting it on rooftops. Maybe they were putting it inside someone's home and there wasn't line of sight and maybe the elevation. Just on- doesn't work. Our, our, you know, we did a ton of work in 2015, 2016. Uh, and, you know, obviously Rappaport did a lot of work on propagation and sounding, and we did sort of 10, you know, you know months of, you know, actual physical propagation work against snow, sleet, ro- rain, ice, you know, different kinds of foliage, different kinds of trees. And, and our conclusion was it's a fool's errand to try to penetrate any kind of modern construction material. It, you just don't have any enough and, power. And what about leaves? And line, like, if I think about your 50% are you literally seeing line of sight to the rooftop of every one of your addressable market, or do you have some tolerance for leaves? We have tolerance rain? for about a tree, uh, you know, think like a six or eight meter tree. And so we have tolerance. We, in our budget, we carry enough to get punched through a one, one and a half tree. Now, again, also depends, you know, that's an oak tree. If I had a bunch of ficus, maybe I get three or four, four trees, but, but really we plan for one, you know, six ish meter tree. Rich, you gonna jump in, or you want to yeah, keep going? So, I've got no, no, no. More. He's been busting uh, for well, twenty-three minutes. <laughs> well, I gave a little so, air so, to let you jump in. <laughs> so I was just making. Otherwise, sure I can that, keep going. First of all, we're we're twenty-three minutes in. If you have questions, oh, sorry. please. We've already got a couple that have flown into the Q and A box, but please hit Q and A. Fill in the questions. We'll try to get through as many with Chet as we can uh, before the four o'clock um, hard stop. Um, I'm sitting in New York, Upper East Side. I have Spectrum. I just ran a speed test while you were on. Spectrum is your cable operator. You don't have Spectrum. You don't own radio frequencies. You have. I I do not. I I, I have no ownership of Spectrum that I'm aware of. On the Spectrum, have Spectrum. (laughs) Exactly. But I do have Spectrum cable, and I have my downstream is 346, and my upstream is 21.9, and that is the best I can buy from Spectrum in New York City that I'm aware of. My question to you is, is when, you know, going back sort of to Walt's question, when you think about who to light up and, and even Brandon, where, you know, fiber, fiber, like uh, up in Connecticut, I can get a gig symmetrical uh, because they're, you know, Altice is actually building fiber uh, versus trying to talk about high splits and Doxis 4.0 and all the stuff that cable's trying to jury rig higher speeds out of. When you think about where you market, are you going after places that don't have fiber? Like, how are you, you know, in terms of like, how yeah, do you think, think about marketing? The, 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 not even marketing, Rich, like on how we're thinking about network build and where our focus is, is, you know, what I will loosely define it as non-competitive markets, which basically means that's about 67-ish percent of the country, which is where you got a single coax provider and a LEC. And the LEC tends to be in various shape of disarray or stage of disarray in terms of kind of where fiber is, focus is. Some days it's, it's a focus point, some days it's not, or you know they haven't done been customer service abysmal. So that's the sort of core focus. So if you think about, uh, you know, Queens is a good example where that's kind of the situation, or you know Hoboken, that you know across the river you're looking at in the Boston area. Folks are familiar with that? You've got 
you know, Austin, Brighton has RCN. We do well against that, but you, but you've got, you know, Everett, Malden, largely unbuilt area, non-overbuilt areas, because it's, people forget, but Fios at some point just stopped construction, right? And so, so throughout the Midwest, you know, you look at, and you can, you can take a look at our 24 gigahertz holdings, and that really tells the story of kind of where we are going ultimately is because all of those markets, you know, be it Vegas, Reno, you know, Phoenix, or, or all the Ohio blocks, or uh, those are all, you know, non-competitive in that sense. So one of the questions that just came in from Ron was how often or how good are you at qualifying the people that, you know, so I go to the Starry website, it says that I'm available, that it's available. You get to my building. I'm all excited to have Starry service and it actually just doesn't work line of sight wise. Yeah. So I think if you go towards, uh, there's a slide there, uh, the comic slide, I forget where it is. Uh, okay. Page 45. So what, what we do is, um, so when we build the, the macro sites, we, uh, our propagation illuminates on a per one square meter resolution, every rooftop. So when a tech comes in, they actually have a iPad. Uh, so before the tech is even assigned anything, they know exactly where the coverage is on what spots around the house. Uh, even if it's behind a tree, what we think the expected RSSI expected performance is gonna be. Uh, so that is plus or minus three dB. Basically, that means you know we're within close to you know ninety-five-ish percent accuracy on that thing. The tech arrives; they have an iPad. The iPad has an augmented reality application. They hold it up, and it actually paints the entire picture of where they where they need to be doing, where the propagation points are. So the success rate at install. Uh, so if you go into Columbus, is a good example. If you go into our sign of flow you're separated based on serviceability versus not. So if you're serviceable, you can be scheduled. If you're not, you'll be put in a different holding tank till we get serviceability to your point. So it's uh, it's the propagation is modeled at the illumination point on a per square meter uh, of, of the target areas. Let me, let me just interject here with maybe back to nerdy engineering stuff. Like if you have a an antenna on the top of an MDU, then everyone in the building gets it, right? You're distributing... So in that case, like anyone in that building that's been quote unquote lit up, it's no different than if you just popped a fiber into the basement. Yep. So in the future, and I, and I think that's most people's perception of Starry historically. So, so in the future is the issue that, so if you look at the, your subscriber growth estimates, a million subs or so by the end of 25, like what's the mix of that, an MDU where it's big fiber, or excuse me, big millimeter wave antenna on the top of an MDU and getting penetration versus I think what you were just describing, which is like single family homes or maybe like, like one of these, you know, in, in uh, Alston, those, you know, three or four apartments. And, yeah. Yeah. So how does that mix and how does so the technology the, differ? The, so the mix I think is, is follows, you know, our experience today is about depending on the city, right? Obviously New York being very different, but you know, about 20 ish percent of the market is, um, has been about 70 apartment units and greater in terms of the mix. And then it grows down as you bring the mix down uh, going forward. So I think you can probably do the breakdown. But I understand that 20% of your subs are in no, 70. No, no. If 20% of the market today is yep. in the larger buildings in these cities, yep. and then as you reduce size, then different percentages kick in. And, and single family tends to be a very small component in true 
you know, cities in, in, uh, in the U.S. You start going out to some of our expansion markets, as we call them, you know, Columbus, Ohio, things like that. You're really looking at 85% single family and 15% multifamily or less, right, in that sense. And multifamily comes in lots of different shapes. You know, you, you look at, you know, Colorado, it's a lot more, you know, sort of smaller garden style multifamily, you know, two-story, that kind of stuff. You were saying multifamily. It's, it's my perception is like the BU students in Alston where there's six apartments in one building. Exactly. Yep. Got That's it. multifamily as well, right? So, so when so, you think of your opportunity, qualifying a building where you know that you can hit the top of a 10-story building is different than hitting a single family home in terms of how the... So when you think about how your growth goes over the next five years, how do you with that subgrowth, how what's that mix going to look like in terms of like a two-story building versus a fifteen-story or a ten-story yeah, so, building? So what I was trying to guide you towards was yeah. the mix in the market of the proper residential sort of sizing is along the lines that I shared, and so basically yep. we follow proportionally in those things. Okay. And the technology is very different uh, on the larger multifamily and larger we qualify as sixty and greater. Uh, that has a different class of a radio. That has that goes on the rooftop. It's power over Ethernet, so it, it powers there. And then basically, it's got active electronics that are splicing into the distribution frames at every alternate floor or whatever the sort of distribution frames in the building happens to be. So you patch into the wiring, and the wiring could be CAT3, CAT5, CAT6, coax, or GBAN, either way. So we are media independent within that building. For the smaller ones, like the Austin Brighton case or the single family. It's a small radio that is coax powered and coax data. So basically it carries power and coax both. So it's a single cable solution. And it's also really clever that it can be split 16 ways. So you can basically take the coax and split it with a passive splitter and feed into 16 different properties underneath it. So a classic case would be, you know, you've got the eight, you know, four apartments on one stack, four apartments, the other common stairwell, single radio back. Each customer, whoever takes the service, contributes power and gets data as well. So it's and that works great for, uh, you know, think strip malls, think those kinds of installations. But it's the same radio that serves single family as well as these small multifamilies. And and is there a difference in your mind generically in terms of the return of investment? I mean, you have a more expensive, more powerful radio, but you're obviously amortizing it across more customers in an MDU, but you have to maybe pay elevator fees to the building guy or whatever it is versus like the single family home. Is there, is there a preference in the type of customers you want in terms of returns you're going to get? Uh, so uh, they progressively change over time. So we, what we've been doing is basically trying to get the electronics to match on a per unit basis. So we're pretty disciplined about, and I think we our benchmark that we disclosed as part of the disclosure was we're spending about $315 per activated unit Yep. Uh, on a that is occupied by a subscriber, not in a passing basis, ac- actual occupied by a subscriber. Uh, that includes cost of radio, cost of labor, installation, all that stuff included. So we try to basically we're continuously driving our cost curves down on the subscriber side as well to match that number because the kind of commitment we make to ourselves of the subscriber payback is you know about tenish month periods. Got it. Okay, so I think our current single-family radio is like in the four-ish hundred-dollar range, but that can be applied on the small multifamily. And if you've got four apartments, yep. the effective allocation becomes really, really low, right? Uh, and so the next iteration of that, you know, we're going to be driving another forty-ish percent cost out of it over the next, you know, twelve eighteen months, um, and then that, you know, that lines up with our our um, continuous more deployment. 
we're about halfway through now, and there's two ways to ask questions. One is in the Q&A box, the other is in the chat, and we have a couple of questions in each. So we're going to go to the Q&A, and it looks like two of the questions are from Nils Pellman. So we'll just ask those back to back, I guess. Um, the first one says 48K sounds like a relatively low customer number. What has been the churn experience and what will it take to really scale the business? So I guess he's asking what your churn is um, and um, what the kind of like gross ad slash churn dynamics are to really get the business to be bigger. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's worthwhile putting it in context, right? So the, the two years that we've been operating as a company in terms of providing service, we went from a standing start to 48,000 in the end of second quarter. And that was largely on the large multifamily, 70 apartments and greater. So if you think about it as a total take rate, it's a pretty high number given where, where our focus was. And the reason for that focus was because the lower cost single family product is just beginning to roll out, right? So that was kind of really what the, you know, we have a pretty disciplined approach that we're not going to put out a $2,000 radio in a consumer's home when we can't have sort of a justification for it. Uh, so to answer the second question, but with that parameter, just, just to sort of point the historical, you know, we've doubled, you know, we went from zero to 17,000 or so in 19, we doubled in 20, we expect to double again this year and, you know, continue to do that without really, you know, driving excessive amounts of penetration, this relatively light penetration rates. On the churn part, you would, you know, the, the, our churn experience, although we are still, uh, you would expect us to be on the higher side just because we're on the, more on the rental side of the market today as opposed to owned uh, fully on a single family side. Our, our net, our, our experience, although, you know, we're not specifically guiding on churn is basically you, you, it's, it's along the lines of move. So about, you know, 19-ish percent of the country moves on an annualized basis. We pick up a bunch of those people as reconnects happen as people move back in. So you end up at a lower, much lower number than that. But that's that's our sort of experience. So, so it's so like one in change per month, basically. Exactly, on a net basis. And then you're really thinking about, you know, what's the effective lifetime of that, you know, apartment that you've deployed. So, so really, we kind of think of it as an occupied unit sort of lifetime value as opposed to an individual consumer because, your capital is not tied to the consumer effectively, your SAC is, right? And, and the SAC on the reattached tends to be lower as well. And just to be clear, the reason why, I mean, in, in, in cable, you obviously can't take your equipment with you, um, but theoretically you could take Starry with you. You just haven't deployed where people are moving to very often. And so exactly. that's why it's churn. Ultimately, if you roll out to enough of a footprint, people move you know, within X miles of their house generally, that won't be an issue longer term, I would presume. Um, or much like cable as well, Rich, where you are getting the reattach in that same house as well as you're moving yep. in. So, uh, and because you can't take Starry today with you largely because we don't sell you the equipment. You don't even lease it part of kind of our network uh, and it terminates there. Um, Got it. The Wi-Fi device, yeah. Well, also, if you're... I mean, if you're in a multi-dwelling unit, the antenna is at the top of the building. You're not taking the antenna at the top of the building. But, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I was this question was more along the single-family part of it. You were right? being nice, Chad. Yeah. That's fine. I, I can give that. Um, I mean, look, when you when you hit single-family homes, then clearly the churn should improve relative to a renter in an apartment in a multi-dwelling unit that might be higher move rate than a than a single-family home, right? So that's potentially another dynamic in terms of your mix 
of subs and return on investment. Um, and and obviously, small medium business makes it you know takes it another direction where you're you're basically getting a much higher ARPU compared to where you know you are on the residential side. Uh, I mean, is everyone just going for that fifty dollar a month, two hundred by two hundred? That's the or? most popular thing for us. Yeah, we 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 started uh, five hundred and a gig, uh, I think, a month ago or somewhere in that time frame. Um, and so, you know, we have early data, but but the most popular thing is the two hundred meg. Has there been any discussion about um, partnering with with Google or Sling and and offering kind of a TV over the top package? It helps on marketing, but also maybe gets just an incremental margin. Um, you know, we're pretty focused on on kind of our approach today. You know, we our view is right or wrong at the moment. Anyways, that there's plenty of business to be had just doing what we're doing. You know, try to get to thirty percent take rate in a very large TAM. You know, provide a great clean experience. Don't confuse the customer with what they can and can't do with you. You know, be be the other guy who's basically providing a neutral platform for for access to any kind of content they want. If they want help from us in terms of, hey, I want to use be able to use YouTube TV, our techs will help them set it up. If they want recommendation on, do I, hey, should I get Amazon Fire or Apple or whatever? You know, we're happy to walk people through it and and get them set up. But you know, we don't want to long term uh, impinge our margins with some content in particular that has, you know. Uh, an adverse effect long term as as costs continue to rise. And similarly, any any um, discussion with wireless operators like a T-Mobile, I mean, they have this thing with Pilot Fiber. Um, I think it's called Pilot Fiber in New York. It's only two or three buildings. Benefit to them, they get you hooked up on broadband, then it potentially lowers their churn as a wireless customer and kind of wraps you guys in. Has there been interest there um, as of yet? Um, nothing that I would sort of talk about but i think you know you you raise an interesting point uh walt because i think if you draw the line out you know three more years the question i think in my mind is do you have a lot of excess mobile capacity that can be packaged as mvnos or do you have a lot of excess fixed line providers that uh, are available right and, and and i think my instinct is you will have more mobile capacity and more flexible packaging opportunities from a lot of different sources uh, because it's a much more competitive market versus on the fixed line side where, you know, literally your chances are one or two, right? You know, Mike Sievert, the CEO of T-Mobile has said in, in pushing their concept of 5G that like, if I get there first, he's really talking about Verizon. I'm going to grab all of the broadband customers on this price proposition, 50 bucks a month for T-Mobile at home. And then once I do that and I've saturated the market, when Verizon or whoever comes in next with that same proposition, they got to do something different. Do you think that's that's true? And and are you going to face those challenges as you kind of expand in five G? You know, the way T Mobile and Verizon are proposing um, comes into those markets. Uh, really, I mean, if you, I think the the way to, I mean, the way I look at answering that question is more on consumption pattern, right? You look at fixed line. If you look at a fixed line customer versus a mobile customer, fixed line customers consuming 50 to 60 times more data than a mobile customers. And that's growing at about 30% compounded annually, right? So, so you look at that and you're saying, how am I going to provide that with 80 megahertz, 100 megahertz with the spectrum in, in mid-band just for giggles, just, just pick that. While if, so if, unless I'm willing to give up 50 times revenue on that bit, that's like a fool's trade, right? So you would only do that in an area where you have extreme fallow capacity and you don't expect capacity 
consumption to rise just because you've got you know a bunch of sort of spectrum deployed in that area. So I think of it along those lines where there will be opportunities for consumers to have a competitive option using mobile 5G uh, where capacity is constrained, but where you have population centers, you know, a couple thousand people, a thousand people within a, a macro sort of infrastructure, your capacity is a real challenge, right? I mean, and people keep forgetting that you're competing with cable at the end of the day, and cable has a gigahertz worth of spectrum in that coax without doing anything too dramatic, right? So right. there's no, no practical way you're going to compete with that unless you show up with a sort of comparable spectrum strategy and that a gigahertz worth of spectrum in C-band I, or mid-band, I, I don't know where you can cock that, or what your return profile looks like because the, the dollars per bit are you know 50 to 60 times less. Great. Right, let's go back to the Q&A. All right, Nils Pellman's second question. <laughs> um, what is the average wait time for installs and how large is the backlog? All installs still with a truck roll? Question mark. Um, so, if it's a lit building, it's same day install, Nils, uh, and half hour install windows. Uh, in single families, we're doing it. Uh, the install time is about 80, 85 minutes uh, uh, on, on a per install. So, a tech will do about you know three ish a day uh, is the sort of way to think about it. Yes, today. If you bifurcate installations into two categories, one in lit buildings, the install can be self, although we don't do that today. Uh, in non-lit premises, the install is with a truck roll. So now we've got a question from uh, Andrew Schwartzman. Will the FCC's proceeding to change rules for multiple tenant environments likely to have meaningful impact on introducing competition? Good question. We, yeah, that's a really good question. We hope so. Uh, we, I mean, we have been very, you know, I think we've been surprised at, at how much success we've been having in, in even against uh, what I will call, you know, exclusive marketing arrangements, right? Today, uh, and, and I, uh, I, I live in one, so I know the coercion that is used. So uh, the, the co-op environment in New York City is not friendly. Um, is your building owner getting Jets tickets, Rich? What is it? Dude, I don't know. It, it took the so coercion? long to... I remember, just trying to get, I remember just trying to get Verizon <laughs> into the building just to have competition. And, oh, the conduits are not wide enough. I mean, it was just like all of this crap. It might not, was, be. It, might not yeah, be. it was bullshit. They were more than wide oh. enough. It worked just fine. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, I think. That, Let's it, keep it PG-13. Sorry, please. sorry, sorry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So so we, we, we hope so and expect so that I think um, it should bring um, more competition in, into the area. Well, let me then ask a, a little spinoff of that question. Obviously, there's a lot of concern about sort of where the FCC, assuming assuming we ever get five people in the FCC wall, which I'm not sure we're ever going to get anymore, but assuming we we, we actually get to uh, a new, uh, an actual chairman or chairperson, as well as five people in the FCC, what's your view on sort of how, you know, um, you know, a lot of talk about price regulation and what could happen. H how do you look at all of that impacting just the overall landscape for broadband? I mean, you know, Rich, in all candor, you know, and this goes back to, you know, 2012 or 2013, you know, we've had a pretty successful dialogue with the FCC and we found them to be extremely constructive all around, right? And whether it was when he was on a push net, on net neutrality, rate regulation was not on the table, uh, you know, really progressive, I think, spectrum policy in both administrations trying to push as much spectrum out as, as they possibly could. Um, so, 
I mean, we lose sleep over a lot of things. I, that's not one of them. Uh, we think that there are good people at the commission that are really trying to uh, advance the agenda, both sides of the aisle. You do have a $15 a month rate plan. I, I don't forget what the speeds were on that. Um, is that something that just falls under the fact that, look, you, that's that's access or that's helping with the digital divide. So does that get ultimately get government funding to pay for that 15 bucks? So the $15 plan is what we call Starry Connect, which is for low-income housing. So you don't actually have to qualify, the premises does. So if the premises qualifies as affordable housing or public housing, by default, if you live there, you have access to the $15 plan, no qualification necessary. Uh, the speed there is 30 meg symmetrical, uh, which you know we, we made it in a, such a way that you can you know work from home, school from home, whatever. Um, what we find as an interesting data point there, a vast majority of those people still take our $50 plan, uh, i.e. It's, it's not the 15 versus 50, it's the process uh, of qualification that really drives that you know, pain point for a lot of people. But how does that work then? So if, if let's say I'm in a qualified building, I can act, I, I'm actually paying the $15 and then you get additional government subsidies beyond that, or it's $15 and then the government may pick up the check on that 15? Today it's it's fifteen straight. We just charge you fifteen for that particular product. There are instances where we have done deals with affordable housing providers where we're providing bulk service. Um, it's it's not a big portion of the business today, but we do provide bulk services as part of that as well. We have another question here in the in the chat that says, um, "Chet, why did you go the SPAC route rather than the traditional IPO? Why did you choose?" FMAC versus the likely 10 other SPACs that would have wanted to do a deal with you? Um, so the first question, you know, we kind of felt like we were at a point where, um, you know, in a you know, pretty candid, you know, conversation here, right? So we've been raising capital to sort of match the next set of milestones we had, right? So we had, you know, seed round of X because we thought we'll get to Y place. We got to Y place. We needed you know, series A, B, C. So it's been kind of that progressive process for us. And it was all leading up towards in 2019, hey, we want to participate in auction 102. So can we secure the spectrum, get a broad PAM for ourselves? In 2020, it was, hey, can we get make sure that we can demonstrate the single family radio? Because if we can, then 2021 onwards, now it's about multi-market, concurrent execution and scaling. And that needs uh, a lot of cash, right? And, and I think in our model, if you see I think that's about a 330-ish million dollar number to get to full cash flow break even. And so then the trade-off was like, okay, where can you get the pool of capital that sort of matches that size with uh, the right set of you know cost structure, if you will? Um, and I mean, you know, this is pretty unique, right? I mean, you don't find a telecom company that's growing 100% a year. I mean, that that sort of doesn't exist, right? So it's a, it's a new kind of a, a category, if you will. So that was really what drove the decision. And, and the question was then, um, you know, <clears throat> if we were going to do an organic IPO, we probably needed to wait another you know, couple of years to get a, sort of get to the right set of parameters that we felt that was the right fit versus doing it with a SPAC right now to get it the right amount of capital in today and continue to accelerate the business and frankly end up further ahead in two years where we would be raising you know, a slug of private capital that would just be kind of getting us to that point. And then I think on the second point, why FMAG? And we we had a lot of interest. Uh, we ran a you know there was a lot of sort of competitive process. Uh, we looked at really qualified sort of sponsors, uh, you know, and ended up with uh, Freshmark for a couple of different reasons. First, 
you know, I think they understand that number, not just they understand, they're in it for the long haul. They were investors in the company from the early stage. So they didn't really, you know, have any, they, they had a very progressive view towards restructuring their economics that matched A, signaling to the, our pipe investors that they were aligned, number two, really creating incentives and, and creating an environment for uh, maximizing cash and balance sheet, you know, at close with the trust. So I think if you look at the structure that they've done, they put up a million shares in uh, as as a uh, for that will go towards people that uh, parties that don't redeem on a prorated basis. So that's a really nice incentive. Plus, seventy five percent of this pro- stru- uh, promoter's structure, so that it pays out at at uh, you know price milestones on the, on the stock, which we thought was uh, important to demonstrate to the market that hey, this was not a you know we're not a concept company. Yes, we are early. But we're not a concept company. We've got two years of operating history with real numbers. Here's a partner uh, that's not in it for a quick buck. They've been in the company. They're, they're going to stay in the company. They're going to be part of the board. They're holding their position and they're locking themselves up. Uh, and, you know, and that's based on you know, the conviction they have based on their long-term sort of history with the company. So that was kind of the, the conclusion. That, that was really the rationale that uh, I, I won the day at the end of the day that, you know, Long-term, we want to set the company up for success, and that means start at a point where everybody will participate and, and you know, hopefully have a great outcome. So I just want to come back then to, I mean, the question that we got a lot or, or the reaction that we got a lot to the announcement today was that 48,000 sub number in, at, at your current state. And, um, you know, because I think people have been generally familiar with the company. And can you just give us a little bit more kind of color behind that? Because I think you were talking about when you were answering that question earlier, you talked about you know, the number of buildings, and maybe there was a capital constraint in terms of hitting the number of buildings, the technology, not having the radio to address the broader market, just the big fat radio at the hop, top of the MDU. In these first two years, you were getting to what percent penetration in the building, you light up a building and what percent penetration were you typically getting to? And maybe that's a better way to, to kind of yeah, 20%, put those numbers in perspective. Yeah. 20% going to 30% after two, in the two-year period. Right. And so, so the issue then was just the number of buildings that were relative to people's expectations of where you were today, the number of buildings um, that were getting, is it difficult? Are, are you finding challenges in getting into the buildings and getting the building owner to allow you to put that antenna on the roof? So I think uh, if, if anybody takes a step back on the history of this sector and say in the first two years, how many premises got deployed for any provider? Starry deployed close to 300,000. Right and taking twenty plus percent share in that, so that I, I think of it along those lines. Right, this is not a SaaS company that's going to be, you know, this is physical infrastructure. So if yeah. you compare it in that sense, you know, it's actually been a pretty incredible trajectory from that perspective. And then the, the second part of that question, which I think Rich wants to get to, sorry, Rich, but I'm going to preempt you on this one, is the 2025 estimate of about a million subs. I mean. The cable industry can probably swallow that and not theoretically care because they're just going to jack people's prices every year. And it's not necessarily going to disrupt the industry because they can just keep raising prices and give you a million. If it all came from cable, obviously you can take some from DSL and, and what have you, but like that it's not really going to change the industry because it's it's you're only going to hit them. Is there is that a conservative estimate? Like, what do you think the the upside opportunity is on that on those growth estimates? Um you know, I I, I I don't think it'd be appropriate for me to sort of say what the upside would be or not. I think we've taken a very conservative case, as I said, 
you know, we put our penetration at that period at like 6% compared to where we're at today in those areas. Some of it is also a function of, you know, when we end the process, what is the cash and balance sheet that might flex up our plans, depending on kind of where we end up with in those things. So I think those well, are the- look, that are Let me ask it a different way. Like you're going to be in front of, I think in, I remember the 2026 number was like, you'd be in front of like 25 million homes um, or something. Yeah. Um, you know, and getting down to sort of that 900 to a million subscribers. Um, but obviously you're not marketing to, you know, you're not actually serviceable to all 25 million because it's not buildings or homes that, you know, actually have a direct, um, availability at that moment. What's the gating factor? Because obviously, if you had more availability, meaning you were in more MDUs or you were in more like, what's the gating factor? Is it just capital? Meaning if if you raised three times as much capital, that number from one million could be three to four. Like, I think we're just trying to understand, like, what flexes capital, that number up and back? Capital is a constraint, obviously. Right. And, and we wanted to make sure we were. Doing and, and how do we think about that balance? Like, what's the like, how does the math work? Like, if you had an extra half a billion dollars, does 1 million go to 2 million? Like, how do we think about sort of the, the connection between those things? So you, you can't switch a flip, uh, uh, flip a switch immediately, right? Because supply chains, time it takes to procure materials, site build, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so the, if you were to sort of think of it from a bottoms up perspective, we can construct a city from st- full to get to about 70% serviceability in terms of meaning 75% of the households will be within verifiable coverage uh, in about a seven month period. And you can parallelize as many as you possibly can because we have a partnership that I think was referenced in there with Quanta that's handling all of our network construction as well. But that's talking single families, that's not talking MDUs or you're talking right. MDUs in that as well? No, uh, all of single family and MDU combined. Got it. I mean, look, the other, the other issue I see is when Rich talks about the 25 million, and we're, we're dealing with a legacy issue where your sales were effectively limited to where you were putting an antenna on top of an MDU, where over the next year or two, it's those 25 million, you can truly sell to them, whether it's word right. of mouth, a right. door hanger, or them just kind of learning about you that- Digital broadcast, all, all of right, the- That number could be substantially different if their dissatisfaction with their cable co is high. Right. So I think it, it really, you're thinking about it takes you about you know six, seven months in a city to set up a network. So you could do 10 cities at a time. You could do 15 cities at a time. But given the capital minimum cash condition that we've laid out in here, we've laid it out to you know three to five cities at a time, depending on kind of where, how much capital we end up with. And why not? I mean, like cities like New York, I mean, would seem like just given the MDU density, like it would seem like a pretty huge opportunity with, you know, Really, there's no fiber competition. Fiber competition doesn't really exist for, for a lot of New York. Manhattan is a different story. Manhattan, you do have a lot of choice, right? And so, but whereas you start looking at the outer boroughs, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of opportunity there. Meaning Queens, I mean, Brooklyn. If, right. And if the FCC, I, the question is, though, is getting back to the earlier question, I, I don't, can the FCC legally force building owners to say we need to open it up? I mean, I guess it, it's, if it's considered a utility, but it's like you own the asset, like can can the government force you and, and effectively do a broadband eminent domain to force these building owners to 
So I think there is, there is. I, I don't know. I'm not lawyers. So I don't know the answer, <laughs> answer to that question. But I think the FCC has done things like now exclusive wiring agreements are not legal to my understanding, right? So those kinds of things do exist. Now people get around them by doing a sale leaseback or you know other kind of convoluted sort of ways to kind of still effectively get to the same place. But um, but I think the intent is there. To, I guess my last question is, can you get Rich's building connected? <laughs> because I, I, I was one of the first people ever submitted. To... <laughs> Dude, I was one of the first people to submit. I, I check all the time. All I want is an alternative. But you have so one, right? Tired. You have Spectrum and Fios? Yeah, no but Fios. Do you have Fios in your building? In fact, we do, but like it's like a what? whole process to like switch Rich. out the, the equipment. What? I'm I'm waiting for Starry. Rich, okay. there's been a little bit of you know lack of information sharing. Yeah, I didn't hear that. That, that have gone along with your broadband struggles over the last several months. <laughs> uh, I'm waiting for Starry. Chet's gonna hook me up uh, one of these days. One of these days, I'm gonna be able to be a Starry subscriber in Manhattan. I can better feel pay it. off that co co op board. <laughs> I, I am confident the co-op board will will support me on this one. I'm guessing that your co-op board will not support you. I don't know. Just, just a guess. By the way, no one I got, I got plenty tickets. of I got plenty of people that I'm serving in a, in Austin and Brighton that are happy to pay me fifty bucks. And yeah, exactly. just just very last question, just because it um I, I we're running out of time. I know you got a hard stop. Why even bother with sing? I mean, obviously, I, I see Walt's point on sort of lower churn, but just given how many MDUs there are and the efficiency of MDUs for you, I know the challenge in certain cities of getting in. But why not? Why even shift the focus given how many MDUs there are in the country? Yeah, so it's less shifting focus, but they change by geography, right? So if you think about sort of cities in the Midwest, that number tends to be more single family versus multifamily, right? Ultimately, we want to. Look, we were still in, we were very much in the stage of setting the table right for the right cost structure and things along those lines. So, but but I think there's an important, I don't know if it's in the slide deck here or not, but that's a good way for investors to think as sort of a, you know, hey, if they just if these guys just continue to do what the MDU opportunity is, I think the total number within our footprint is about 15 million homes uh, that matches that. And if you yep. were to just get the same like 20-ish percent or 15 or 18 percent of that and you compare that to you know any other public comp up out there now obviously it may take you longer just because you're not direct to consumer right the other advantage of single family is you're direct to consumer so the decision maker is who's calling you and that process you know today in an mdu for example by the time you get an access agreement do you get to a cost actual subscriber that may be a 90-day period right uh versus in a single family it's like they place an order, you're there in four hours and you're activating them. So 90 days is faster than I would have thought, Chet. That's even that's pretty good, even for an MDU. 90 days. Yeah. Um, this yeah, was great. Think, well, I think if you look at the volume of the units that we're activating today, I think it's it's pretty, you know, um, we feel really good that that you know, just making sure we continue to do that and just improve on that on a quarterly basis is a gets you to a pretty you know, remarkable outcome in the company. Chet, thanks for joining us. I know today's a busy day with filing for uh, the transaction today, and thanks for making us a priority. And we were excited to have you, and um, we will be following the story as you go public. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Thank you. Take care. Bye.